Tomorrow, July 4th, a lot of Americans will be watching fireworks, eating hot dogs, maybe even apple pie, to celebrate independence from King George of England back in 1776. A lot of Americans, but not everyone. On July 4th, 1776, when America celebrates its Independence Day, Black people were still enslaved, and it was just another day for Black people. That's Michael Harriet in Birmingham, Alabama. He's a writer for The Root, a website on African-American news and culture. And when he thinks about independence, he thinks of another day. I think of Independence Day as June 19th, when... Black people celebrate the end of slavery. And he's not the only one that celebrates freedom and independence on June 19th. June 19th, 1865, when all slaves in the United States were free. So I start to look more at that uh, from an African-American standpoint as uh, the Independence Day. That's Michael Hurd, a historian of African-American history at Prairie View A&M a historically Black university outside of Houston, Texas. There are some 47 states that celebrate Juneteenth, and we are trying to get it made a national holiday. And we've garnered some 1 million-plus signatures that other people agree with. And in Fort Worth, Texas, that's Opal Lee, an activist at the tender age of 93. She's been fighting for years to make a federal holiday out of June 19th. And what they've all been saying is starting to be heard. It's a little bit before 11 a.m. on Friday, and I'm in Washington Square Park in New York City. Our correspondent, Gabriel Elizondo, on this June 19th. It's a beautiful day here. And it's the start of one of the first protests and rallies and vigils. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. This date, June 19th, it has a name, Juneteenth. It's a holiday, and until now, it's been celebrated mainly by African Americans. This year, Major League Baseball marked Juneteenth. Idaho and 46 other states marked Juneteenth. The Cartoon Network marked Juneteenth. And swaths of the American workforce either took or were given the day off to consider what it means to be African American right now and what it means to be free. These are a few of the voices from that New York rally. It's about time. You're just tired. Been trying for years and years, decades. We just want change. This has been a long time coming. So many false promises that, you know, things have to change. But for Michael Harriet at The Root, seeing all these new faces marking a holiday he'd always seen as an African-American holiday was a surprise at first. I was at a poetry event and a guy... A white guy, he had just learned about Juneteenth and asked, well, why isn't this 
America's Independence Day. And I never thought of it like this. I thought of it mm. as a cultural holiday that was significant to me in the same way that Jewish Passover. But when you think about it, it is the first time America was truly free. And it should be America's Independence Day. So why all this new excitement? What happened 155 years ago on Juneteenth? We asked all three. So on June 19th, 1865, uh, Union General went to Galveston, Texas. Union General Gordon Granger arrived with about 2,000 troops. That's the other Michael, Michael Hurd, the Prairie View historian. And their main objective is to uh, bring the word that slaves are freed. For those of you who aren't familiar with American history, don't worry, we'll catch you up. And for those of you who are, you may still be thinking, wait, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. And you're right, but... There were no major battles in Texas during the Civil War. So... There were no Union troops around to uh, enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. So you have slaves being moved from other Confederate states to Texas, which was considered a safe haven for slavery. You can take your slaves to Texas and you continue doing what you do. And uh, that's why it, it took so long, because of plantation owners just ignoring the edict. And there are records of this. Interviews recorded in the 1930s with people who were formerly enslaved. And Hurd's been studying them and sharing them as part of his role at Prairie View. Here's a short one who said, When we all got free, they were a long time letting us know. They wanted to get through with the corn and the cotton. A lot of slave owners weren't willing to give up their source of income. But on June 19, 1865, they were instructed by Union Army General Gordon Granger to set their enslaved people free. So when General Granger arrives with his troops, uh, there are different versions about how exactly he got the word out or where he got the word out. But he really had to nail that. It's called General Order Number Three. I'm going to let Opal Lee jump in here and tell the story as she heard it with some help from Michael Harriet and Michael Hurd. He had to nail that to the door of Reedy Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And when the slaves came in and somebody read that to them, we started celebrating and we've been celebrating ever since. We would go to the church. We would go on what we call the picnic. And we would play games, have relay races, run around yelling and screaming and having fun. The women in the church would cook. Stuffing ourselves with every kind of food you can imagine. We've had festival after festival after festival, but our festival always begins with a breakfast of prayer because we know that slaves prayed and prayed and prayed for freedom The para is so sacred to us. Up until now, at least, Juneteenth was mainly celebrated by African-Americans in the South. And I wanted to ask our historian, Michael Hurd, why. 
so on a personal level, my maternal side of my family comes from Texas. And though many of them went north, they went to Chicago during the Great Migration, the movement of millions of African-Americans fleeing from the south. I still do have family in Galveston, Texas, and that is the very site where Union Army General Gordon Granger announced on June 19th that all enslaved people in Texas were now free. If I didn't have those roots, I don't know that I would have known about Juneteenth. And so I wonder what you make of how well this history is taught or hidden across the United States. There's been this effort, a concerted effort for us not to know about ourselves and who we are, not to gain any kind of appreciation for who we can be. When slaves weren't allowed to read, I didn't know a lot of that stuff growing up either. Heard grew up in Houston, in the segregated South. I have self-taught myself about Black history. I'm, I'm to the point now, Malika, where I am happily a uh, Black history library nerd. <laughs> we need more of them. I, I love the history. I love researching and writing about the history. I learn something new every day. And you can't really understand the protests on the streets of America right now unless you understand the history of justice and injustice. This history has been playing in his mind. And one story in particular sticks out. It happened in Houston just over 50 years after emancipation in 1917. It's called the Camp Logan Mutiny. Camp Logan was a military base under construction, and the 3rd Battalion of the 24th Infantry... The Buffalo Soldiers, basically. Buffalo Soldiers. Black Soldiers. They were sent down to Houston to guard the camp while it was being built. Many of them had recently come back from defending the United States at war. Technically, they're military policemen, but they were not allowed to carry weapons. They couldn't carry guns because white citizens were afraid of the sight of black men walking through the streets armed. And they didn't want to, they didn't want to have that. And as a continuation on that theme, the racism these soldiers faced in Houston was beyond brutal. The battalion commander said that when a black soldier was killed by a Texas Ranger, law enforcement, just because that soldier was black, the concern wasn't the loss of life. It wasn't the soldier's death. He said, quote, it angered Texans to see colored men in the uniform of a soldier. So it gets to the point where, you know, they're getting all of this physical abuse and verbal abuse from the policemen, you know, from some of, some of the citizens in Houston. And at one point, based on a rumor that a black soldier had been arrested and killed, these soldiers finally decided to fight back. So... They storm the armory at Camp Logan, they get weapons, and they proceed to march on Houston. And in the ensuing march, they end up killing 16 uh, white citizens, uh, several policemen. But they also ended up killing four of their own uh, through friendly fire. In the end, 118 black soldiers were rounded up and tried. 110 were found guilty. 19 hanged, and 63 others received life sentences. For the vast majority, the evidence was shaky. They had no 
firm evidence that those guys had done anything that night. And they ended up hanging those men summarily. I have been to their grave sites. Uh, sorry, it, it, it gets to me because I, I, went, I went to that cemetery at Fort Sam Houston and the headstones for every other soldier in there, name, rank, born, died. For the men who were hanged just gives their name. You know, and it's it's a very sad scene. Nobody could really say that those guys had done anything that night. We've seen protests all across the country over this past month, and that includes in parts of Texas, against racism, against violence by police. What do you make of this movement, this moment in time that we are in right now? Why now? It's very sad that somebody had to lose their life for this kind of momentum to kick in. And I don't know that you can just pinpoint anything in particular about it other than it happened again. It happened again. This is nothing new. I was out at many of those protests that were taking place in Washington, D.C., where I live now. And protesters would also chant the names of those who had been killed previously, before George Floyd. One of them, of course, is Sandra Bland. They shout, Sandra Bland, say her name. Now, Sandra was in Texas. Many people remember the video. There was a confrontational traffic stop. She was jailed and was found dead, hanging three days later. She had graduated from Prairie View, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, she's a Prairie View grad. I think she was coming back to a start a job uh, on campus. You know, and George Floyd wasn't the first and, and obviously not the last. Sandra's really struck home, you know, that relationship between African-Americans and, and policemen. It hadn't gotten better you know, in that regard. So looking back at the history, uh, it it says to me, well, it's probably going to happen again. On a personal note, what do you do and and what goes through your mind when you see a police officer? It is terrifying because you don't know. You don't know how this officer is going to look at you. He's going to just look at you as a motorist who broke the law and you just need to write him a ticket. Or is he looking at you as a black man? You don't like black people and you're going to mistreat this person to the point of maybe you're going to kill that person. So whenever there's a flashing light uh, and I'm the uh, subject of that flashing light, you know, whatever it might be, I'm, I'm very nervous and apprehensive. I am compliant, you know, to a T, and I am praying that I will be able to get home uh, safely, you know. So it's a terrifying prospect for all Black men. So it begs the question, how free is Black America? Michael Harriet, the writer for The Root, told us even when he thinks he sees the police, his reaction is pretty much the same. How safe do you feel 
as a Black man in America now? And has that changed over the years? It is relative. I am sure I feel safer than uh, my ancestors. I am also sure that I feel more unsafe than any white person in America. There's a sign that is at the in an intersection, like a couple blocks from where I live, and it's blue. And at night, it flashes. And every time I pass that sign, even though I know it is dead, I still get a small heart palpitation knowing or thinking or peering in the rearview mirror, wondering if that is the police, right? The people who are charged with protecting and serving everyone in this country are feared by people who look like me. Opal Lee also had a story about the police. My parents bought a house in 39, the people gathered some 500 of them strong because they didn't want us in that neighborhood. And my father came home from work with a gun and the police told him, if you fire a cap, we'll let the mob have you. Now the paper said that the police couldn't control the mob, but my parents sent the three of us to friends several blocks away. And they left under cover of darkness, but those people had began to throw rocks and firebombs and they drug out the furniture and set it on fire. My parents never spoke to us about it. They never told us anything, but I learned that there's a difference in the police, and I know we can't paint all of them with the same brush, but there's got to be something that would weed them out. Our young men have to walk like they're walking on eggshells, and it's just not right. So we asked Opal how America is doing now on the path towards freedom. We haven't arrived, let me put it that way. We've made some progress, but we haven't arrived. I think Martin King would be shaking his head because he expected us to do a hell of a lot better than we're doing now. Michael Harriet's been thinking about the progress we've made too. And he wrote this great, funny story for The Root, about the organizer of the very first Juneteenth cookout. Let me find the line. You had a cookout? Well, that was my job. How else were we going to eat? Wait, did you organize it? Yeah, that was me. We used the smoldering embers from the plantation we set on fire, and a few women from the Smith plantation made some potato salad. Best potato salad I ever had. All that jumping up and down and hugging makes a man hungry. So I had to organize a cookout. <laughs> okay, it was even funnier as you read it. That was good. Okay. Clearly, this character is fictional. Michael weaves history with humor to make his point. But we wanted to know what he thought of the real narratives of the formerly enslaved, too. So we shared one with him from someone who was there on that first Juneteenth. 
This is a man named Felix Haywood. He talks about what it felt like on June 19th, 1865. He says, everybody went wild. We all felt like heroes, just like we were free. It didn't seem to make the whites mad either. They went right on giving us food just the same. Nobody took our homes. But right off, colored folks started on the move. And he goes on to say, we knew and we thought we were going to be richer than the white folks because we were stronger and we knew how to work. And the whites didn't. And we didn't have to work for them anymore. But it didn't turn out that way. It makes me think of a crime. Right. You've stolen the labor of these people for, you know, then 300 years and built an entire country and an entire society that was now the richest country on the face of the earth. From their labor and all they had is their labor and they still couldn't be rich, I think. There eventually has to be a reckoning in America, whether it is a cultural reckoning or a personal reckoning, and or whether it is gradual or all at once, there has to be a reckoning of the current and past atrocities that America has committed against Black people. We knew we can work harder, and we thought that would make us rich. But it didn't. And that's what being in America is still like. So last question. How are you planning to celebrate the 4th of July? I don't really celebrate the 4th of July. I might cook out with my family or, you know, do some stuff around the house. But I don't wear like an American flag T-shirt or go see the fireworks or listen to the national anthem at dawn. It is just another day to me. Uh, Because, again, there is nothing for me to commemorate about July 4th, 1776. It literally means nothing to me if I am Black in America. We asked Michael Hurd the same question. I doubt that I will do anything special for the 4th of July. I really never have. It is, to me, just kind of another another day. Juneteenth is more of a day for me. And as I do on Juneteenth, and, you know, what I'll probably do on the 4th of July is reflect, just hoping for a better future for all of us and that we get beyond racism, which is a very difficult task. But we're getting there, I think. We're working on it. And Opal Lee is even more hopeful at the age of 93. And she's hopeful about all the new support she's seen for Juneteenth. To see all of these young people, black, white, brown, green, whatever color, getting together, oh, I love it. I love it. And so there's hope. There's hope before I get off the scene that some of these things are going to be uh, worked on and adjusted and we're going to have a decent society. I guess I got to live to be 100 to see it, but hey, I'm looking forward to it. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Oni Wohacha, 
Priyanka Chauve, Dina Kispe, Nate Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>